just be really crisp on aligning around the philosophy of, hey, we'll know we need to scale this, but as we scale it, we can't walk away from delivering the value we've been delivering. And I think that that's where I should have spent more time than on the tactical side and like ensuring that every, you know, all my ducks were in a row there. Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com. Here's your host, Brian Bush. On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, my guest is Andy Swansburg, the Chief Product Officer for Core Services of Explore. Explore Technologies is a global platform integrating verticalized SaaS, embedded payments, and commerce accelerating technologies, which I'm excited to have Andy define for us here shortly. Explore provides enterprise-grade SaaS solutions for SMBs and everyday life verticals, like childcare and education, fitness and well-being, field services, and personal services. Andy, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, so first, give us a little bit your background and sort of the career journey that led you to being the chief product officer for core services at Explore. Yeah, I think my journey is a little atypical. I got into graphic design by way of an art major in college, and then I started doing some website design, which was sort of a gateway to product design. I entered a pitch competition at college, did not know anything about technology, except I felt like I could design it fairly well. And at the time, my mom owned a yoga studio and we were discussing some of the problems she had. And that led me to building many versions of the wrong product, ultimately to end up with a marketing automation solution for the fitness industry. So it was very interesting. I didn't have any plans to get into technology, to be honest. So it's been fun. Okay. And that marketing automation solution, remind me of the name of that company. That was named Brandbot. Well, it was actually named Brinbot because we couldn't afford the domain with an A. Early on in our company, we finally bought our valve and then we went to market in 2018. And then we sold to Advent International early 2020, right before COVID hits. And since then, I've been working with Explore, which is an Advent Portco. Got it. So came to Explore by way of acquisition. And that's an incredible story from an art major to technology leader. Seems like it was a natural fit. Give us maybe the two sentences, how you would describe Explore or how you would go just a little bit deeper. Yeah, I think what's great about Explore is that we've recognized that a lot of SMB vertical SaaS solutions have a lot more in common across industries than I think people would realize, but there's a dichotomy with also needing to be really focused. And so I think about like sort of an hourglass where we need really broad payments infrastructure for all the recurring payments that our SaaS products do. And then we need very focused, tight, everyday software for, you know, all the verticals we serve. And then we need to go broad again for things like integrations to payroll or building marketing automation. It's a very interesting world where we can build things broadly, but also need to build things very specifically at given times. And the B2B to C playbook, I think, is, is more common than un, you know not common or standardized across the verticals. I'll say I love that hourglass metaphor, if you were, just the visual that comes with that. And I think it maps really great to this concept of SaaS 3.0 these days, which Definitions are floating around out there, but it's generally vertical specific solutions, payments, 
and oftentimes sort of other embedded finance sorts of products or offerings. In your world, it's vertical specific solutions, payments, as you mentioned, and this bucket of commerce accelerating technologies. You mentioned that may include some embedded finance, but it includes more than that. And I actually like the way you all frame that idea of commerce accelerating technologies better. So would you give us kind of like, hey, here's how you think about what falls into that bucket? Yeah. Again, I think that one of our key tenants is allowing the core vertical SaaS businesses to stay very specific and focused. And then when you do that, you start realizing things like marketing automation, for example, or embedded payroll can be more broad. And so what we started looking at is, is there a basket of things that we can attach to our core products that help the customers grow? So what's really important to us to explore is we don't want to be a set of commoditized functionality. We want to prove our ROI from an SMB perspective. And so it's really about, hey, if you do adopt our products, it comes with a lot of purpose-built tools that will prove ROI from getting you to either growing top line or bottom line, you know, whatever their goals are as an SMB. So it's a broad bucket for us, but right now we're very focused on growth functionality. So anything from loyalty referrals is in our roadmap to email messaging, email automation, text automation, and then sort of on the frontier, things like a global accounting integration, a global payroll integration, anything that either saves time or produces revenue that in a sort of a tangible, provable manner falls under commerce accelerating technologies. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Now, you said something interesting there, which was, hey, we don't want to just be bundling a bunch of commoditized features or offerings. Like we want to really make things great for folks. So, you know, for, with many of these, hey, we are talking about payments, something like you said, that bans many different verticals, many different customer needs. How do you think about dialing in sort of that good enough versus really great, maybe on the vertical specific side? Like, have you, are there lessons learned or rules of thumbs that you sort of use or think of? to say like, hey, this really meets the bar that we have for our customer base. Yeah, just to focus in on the vertical SaaS bit, I think specificity is incredibly important. And I think you sort of get to that through two ways. It's one, really understanding who you want your customer to be and importantly, who you don't want to be. And I know these are sort of maxims, but but they've held very true for us. And then two, the context of an SMB and how they consume software is just so different than somebody that shows up to work and the software is their job. You know, like my anecdote with my mom, it's like she didn't have time to write emails or write text messages because the closet's on fire, whatever it is. You know, they don't have a lot of time in their days. And so understanding the arc of how your software fits in, I think is just incredibly important. And I think third, and I'm a big proponent of like product doesn't equal pixels, it's sort of the full product experience is if you don't speak their language, they don't trust you. And SMB is built on top of you know trust and partnership. You need to be very intentional about the little moments of your software that make a big difference. And so for enterprise SaaS, if you add an extra click, you don't want to, but it's not the end of the day. For SMB, like it could throw off their entire day, make them frustrated because they're already you know dealing with a thousand things. And so you really have to understand those moments and back into them through a very specific lens. And so I think that's what makes great vertical SaaS is that they understand those very small pain points and they can pick away at them very specifically. Well, I appreciate that. And there are a lot of companies out there today that I think are targeting a single vertical and they're trying to do exactly what you're talking about. In your case, let's talk a little bit about how you think about organizing your teams and infrastructure because your challenge, you know, we mentioned several different verticals. I think Explore is 70 or 80,000 customers across maybe 20 countries, please correct me if I'm getting any of those stats wrong. 
So how do you think about organizing, let's say both the product teams and the infrastructure so that you can both bring in, you know, the wide parts of the hourglass, some of those, some of the features and functionality that span many of these different verticals, but allow the teams who are building those really vertical specific, you know, the narrow part of the hourglass, allow those teams to leverage those appropriately and specifically for, for that vertical need. Yeah. One of our biggest challenges is that we can't feel like multiple vendors. And so it's not like we can build completely separate products and just slap the same logo on it because again, SMB, they want that one seamless, you know, people call it all in one. I think that may be a little dated now, but they do want that single vendor experience. What we've come to realize is we build in a modular approach dealing with as many different vertical SaaS companies as we deal with. There's a couple of things we need to keep in mind, which is like, if we build it, do they have time to integrate with us on their roadmap? You know, they have their own stuff going on. Do they need additional business logic that we don't think is generalized enough for us to build? And so there's all these concerns about not just us building it, but also will they take it and make sure it feels integrated? And so what we do is we always start with sort of the API first and we say, what's the business logic we need to deliver? And our customers are our sister vertical SaaS companies. And we go out there and say, great, if you did referrals, what would be good? And we sort of come up with our generalized version of that. We know that they have their own roadmaps again. So it's like, hey, do you need a click away experience to start? And we'll just, you know, make sure it's SSO and the same login and all sorts of fun stuff. And it's not our ideal solution, but maybe we want to get this into market. Our customers are asking for it and they'll tolerate that. We need to build our own hosted version that plays nicely with all the vertical SaaS. That's sort of our second function. And then the third one is saying, great, what's the least amount of effort we can do to make this field baked into the, to the native product? And so we do all sorts of things around embeddable iframes and making sure that we can have it feel like a seamless experience, but build separately. So one of the things we try to do is every project gets really boiled down to like, what are the core functionality bits that are like, send an email? And then what's the business logic that we need to wrap around that for managing how those emails look and getting analytics back? And then it's, okay, are you ready to integrate natively? If so, go build with these front-end components or will embed. If not, we have to host. And so it's a very, I think we're in a very unique spot against other companies that may be single product because it's a lot easier to just build in, in a microservice architecture or whatever you need to do. Like we're building separate applications entirely to maintain our tempo. And what I hear you say is not just those three points, which were, again, just to recap sort of the core functionality, the business logic, and then letting some of those vertical specific teams sort of decide the level of integration or giving them, I think what I heard is options, but it sounds like you treat those vertical specific teams basically as your customer, like your core services. And you have to think about their roadmap, their priorities, which I'm sure are competing many times in terms of actually, how do you sequence what you're going to build from a core capability standpoint? 100%. So I think that's the dance that we are continually trying to get great at is we have a lot of different inputs. What is really nice is that we've seen a major shift in SMB towards the marketing side and the growth side not being a luxury anymore, but being a must-have. And so there's a lot of pattern finding of, you know, we just launched an integration to one of our field service platforms and they do like HVAC and plumbing. And knowing my relationship with my HVAC provider, it's not lifecycle marketing like my relationship with the yoga studio. But when we launched it, we got a ton of demand because they're like, hey, we need to reach out to our customers. The Gen Z wants text messages, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so there is a nice wave we're riding in terms of a lot of the stuff we're focused on, you know, maybe three to five years ago was 
early adopters and the pioneers in some of these industries. And now it's very much table stakes. And so it is easy for us to create that prioritized list, but obviously that'll run out and we'll have to continue to figure out what's next. And that's fascinating that you get to bubble up the patterns and lessons from across many verticals. I can see how that's definitely an advantage over over somebody who's just focused on one very specific industry. I'm curious, how do you think about what in the realm of embedded finance are you seeing come out from those patterns? Like where is their heat or where is their demand in, or at least from the customer base that you're seeing? I think from an embedded finance perspective, it's obviously a must-have to make payments seamless for your end customer, what we call the consumer at Explore. And I think that that's obviously been something that the industry shifted towards majorly in the last you know five to seven years, whatever it is. And so as that's become commoditized, you need to continue to sort of build out that side of the business to ensure the threshold of value, Apple Pay, Google Pay, all sorts of fun stuff, right? I think that that, we have a few payment processors that we own as a company and, and they're focused on that. What we're focused on from a commerce accelerating technologies perspective is a lot of those next pioneers. And so we're looking at things like capital as a service. We're looking at things like payroll as a service. And our initial reaction is always partner, try to white label. And again, we do have all these different vertical SaaS companies. Can we build a single point of integration, build an embeddable UI that they have and sort of abstract a lot of that business logic to integrate with capital as a service or integrate with payroll as a service, whatever it may be. So I think people are starting to react to why is there so much friction in some of these in some of these moments? Like why is it so hard to set up payroll? Why is it so hard to, you know, the expectation of our businesses or merchants now is like it should be seamless. And so that's what we're trying to give to them. And I think the embedded finance part is especially heightened friction because there's some anxiety around it and it's tough to navigate the regulations and all sorts of fun stuff. So we're seeing a lot of demand for some of those more integrated experiences across some of those functionality bits. Not surprised to hear that. Now, I want to go back to sort of your unique both benefit, but challenge of, hey, how do you build core services for many of these different vertical specific teams? And you layer on then in Explorer's case, you're international. Like all of these, or please correct me, I assume all of these verticals operate internationally, or many of them do. So that just adds another and maybe exponential level of of complexity at certain times. So how much time do you spend thinking about the international markets, the need, the product needs of those users? Where do you see that there are key differences that you really have to either keep in mind or work around? What do the product leads that maybe report to you really need to know in order to incorporate the international aspect of your business? Yeah. So the majority of our products are international. I put international in the bucket of just any product market fit expansion work that needs to be done. And so we want to approach that with a framework first and foremost. So another product market fit expansion for us, at least is like franchise-based companies. It's almost a flavor on top of your core feature set versus additional marginal features. And so if you think about something like marketing automation, franchises want to control some of what goes out. They don't want to control some of what goes out. And so again, it's more of a flavor that we layer on top. International is the same, right? I think we have to generate invoices, but sometimes those invoices need tax included or excluded. And so it's really more of understand, you know, when, when I press the product leads, it's, it's understand how all of our features change when we apply product market fit expansion versus like it's just an additional feature set. I think what's tricky about international in particular would be you just don't know until you either launch in market or you have somebody as an expert how different each market is. 
And so obviously there's the ones that come to mind, like translation, right? Like super top of mind when you do stuff like this. What doesn't come to mind until you're there is like, what does the competition look like? Obviously in global enterprise software, that's a lot far ahead versus vertical SaaS. There's different vertical SaaS companies in our divisions that just focus on one country. And you go in there and they're obviously tailor-made for that country. And so you have to understand what's making them valuable and compete against that on top of just getting there. I think another big learning moment for me was you need to go slow to go fast. You're not going to just want to launch in one country and then wait six months and launch in another country. Like your commercial team is going to be pushing you to more. And you're, you know, what we need to do is figure out, hey, not just add that for UK, for example, but we need to change our entire invoicing process to be able to add that marginal country very quickly. What's really helpful for us is that we have an international payment processor. And so they can help a ton with that. And I think that that's very different than us using an external provider because we can share a lot of the load because we're the same company when we need to do stuff like that versus just being a pure play payments provider. I think a really interesting example for being localized is we have a gym platform that services in Australia. And one of the biggest value props there is a contact center for our customers, which just isn't kind of how we do things domestically. And so, you know, again, a lot of it's billing related and stuff like that. And so it's like, okay, well, we have a payments company that does a lot of the billing and a lot of that infrastructure. And so you can really share the load there. So again, it's been really interesting to figure out one, how to just, I guess, plant your flag there. Step one, that you just have to understand you're going to want to move faster. Your team, your org is going to want to move faster than just one country per quarter or one country per six months. And so you got to think about the frameworks there. And then secondly, what are those very specific competitors doing that you'll need to do to be successful there? Going international has been a blast. It's been really eye-opening. Obviously, when we sold our company, we kind of just took whatever we could internationally, but didn't have an international strategy. And now we have to be the keepers of a full-blown you know, international strategy. If you look back, was there any point where you said like, hey, I think the products, especially the brand bot product in this case, like, I think it's ready for to be sort of, it sounds like in this case, pulled into the international side or the international portfolio within Explore. Yeah. I mean, romantically looking back, I wish I had that level of articulation. It was more, we had an opportunity. Should we roll the dice and see if we can get to Australia or the UK? We were fortunate enough to be on, and we still are, Twilio's infrastructure and obviously sending texts and emails. They unlocked that locally for us. What we're starting to run into though is like, People use WhatsApp or Line, you know, and it's like, okay, to be truly competitive, we need to figure out if we want to be able to offer that stuff. And the answer is yes, but just when, obviously. Well, I love that idea of like, hey, there's once you decide to go international, there's going to be a lot of pull from the commercial teams for multiple markets. So finding and identifying kind of like, hey, where can you add a marginal new country versus where are there really country specific things? I think that that seems like very savvy advice for other founders and other product leads who are thinking about this. And maybe as we start to wrap up, if you look back on acquisition and the integration into what's now Explore, what other advice on integrating acquisitions would you give to other folks who are in your chair, but you know, five years earlier? Like what watch outs, what challenges, what lessons learned would you impart on some of those folks listening? Great question. I've seen it from both sides now. We've made acquisitions since I've been here and obviously we got acquired. I think the biggest thing is that the tactical plan you're going to want to spend a lot of time on, and it will, no matter what, be thrown out much sooner than you think it will be thrown out just by the nature of how quickly companies move. 
I had a lot of anxiety about like making sure that everything was forecasted correctly and aligning with that. And it's all very important stuff, but just know that that doesn't hold very long. It's some advice I got when I was getting acquired. They're like, hey, they're going to show you an org structure. That org structure will change in four months, you know, whatever it is. And, and sure enough, it wasn't too far after that. It's all for good reasons too. Like a company doesn't really know the best way to integrate a company until they've sat with it for a little bit. So I just thought that was really interesting because I spent so much time like, on the tactical side, like all these plans and whatnot. And those were quick to get out. What I didn't spend enough time on and what I would urge everyone to is like, truly understand where your value is being driven from. We were obviously a considerably smaller company than what we were getting acquired into. We got acquired with a, right around 25 people and we went to a 2,500 person work. And like, that's obviously exponentially larger. I really thought, hey, we need to mature all my functions to make them look like the larger corporation functions and whatnot. And there's a lot of truth to that. But during it, we walked away from a lot of the stuff that made us really valuable. And then we kind of had to build it back in. So things like we spent a lot of time and money on onboarding and people were like, this doesn't scale very well. Instead of figuring out how to make it scale well, we just absorbed the process that the parent company had. What I would say is I didn't articulate well enough that, hey, in the marketing automation world for small businesses, if you don't onboard them correctly, they don't stick around very long because they just don't sit down and build a hundred automations that you want them to build and whatnot. And so that's a very particular anecdote of, just be really crisp on aligning around the philosophy of, hey, we'll know we need to scale this, but as we scale it, we can't walk away from delivering the value we've been delivering. And I think that that's where I should have spent more time than on the tactical side and like ensuring that every, all, all my ducks were in a row there. Other than that, I think just be as open as you can be about the things you believe in. Again, I sold my company when I was 26, which is obviously fairly young. I started in college, so it was like my first boss ever. I didn't push back a lot of like, hey, this is the stuff I believe. I believe you know our culture needs to be X, Y, Z still, and we need to figure this out. And those little moments in Slack actually do make a big difference. And I'm going to fight for those. I kind of nodded along being like, oh, this is the way big companies work. That's fantastic. And some of it was great, and some of it created a lot of challenges. Again, I think just aligning on your philosophy around what's driving value to your customers, what's driving value to your employees, and then just being really open about that would have made my time a lot better. I will say it was a blast. Advent's been fantastic. I wasn't looking to sell, which is a large testament to, you know, the value prop I saw in this company. You know, certainly people are thinking about it. It is a fantastic ride. It just, it's going to be a lot, lot thrown at you. And you just got to figure out when to dig your heels in and figure out, you know, kind of when to go with the flow. Well, having been on the acquiry side a couple of times, I can attest and, and appreciate that advice on, hey, sometimes it's tough to calibrate where is this just how this new company operates versus where do you need to, as you said, dig your heels in and push back and, and fight for some of the things that you really believe in. So Andy, appreciate you sharing that advice. I also, some great frameworks here today. I love the SaaS 3.0 sort of hourglass piece. And I hope or expect that as we evolve that and we get more companies out there as they think about, hey, it's not just embedded finance. It's all of these commerce accelerating technologies. I think you articulated really well. Like that's what SMBs are looking for. It's a whole basket of things to make their business more successful. And two, for all the vertical SaaS folks listening, you need to be very focused on your industry, know your customer really well, but there might be lessons, there might be product features and things that you can take from other verticals that are close by or maybe not so close by. And you might be missing out if you don't poke your head around in those a little bit. So Andy, thank you again. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Before we wrap up, if anybody listening wants to connect with you, where would they be able to do that, say on social media or, or via email? Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest thing is just to drop me a, a quick message on LinkedIn. I try to keep up with them. I think I do an okay job, but you know, I love a good virtual coffee. And uh, you can just find me at Andy Swansburg 
uh, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Andy, thank you again for everybody listening. Thank you for your time. We're wrapping up for today. We'll link to any of the resources mentioned in today's show notes. Thank you again and keep an eye out for our next episode. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com.